Our passage today is the parable of the mustard seed. I'm going to read from Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32. This is the word of the Lord. Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Amen. So parables are sort of mysterious teaching devices in that uh, they aren't allegories, they aren't just metaphorical, uh, they aren't, but they sort of are philosophical, but not only. Um, they are... They're they're powerful teaching devices in the sense that they can be told and retold in many different contexts. You need sort of minimal knowledge of the terms of this story or of any of the parables to begin to get into uh, really what Jesus is teaching here. Um, A parable, like any good literary device, delivers more than the sum of its parts. So a parable is usually short, brief, so easy to remember, uh, and it usually uses normal, uh, typical terms of, of average, normal, daily, mundane experience in order to convey something else, in, other, to, in order to convey maybe many other things. Um, and so I- in, in that sense, they're excellent, again, excellent teaching devices that anyone can remember it. It sticks with you, and you can work it over in your mind over and over again, and it begins to unfold. And the more attention you give it, the more it sort of pays back. Um, Jesus' parables have sort of the particular advantage that he's teaching about something really magnificent, something uh, especially, uh, I'll say complex, but we could use a more biblical word, especially unsearchable, which means uh, that the truth of what he's teaching sort of never ends. You can, you, you, the, the more you investigate, actually, the more pressure you apply, the more sort of, it, it, uh, the more momentum uh, of the teaching. In other words, the, the more it pays back. Um, and you, you, you sort of never exhaust it. I think, I think its, its value grows with time, and its value grows with examination. So parables are, are mysterious, again, in that sense that, that they're sort of exceedingly ordinary. It's almost a paradoxical way to say it, but they're simple, simple stories you can share with a child. Uh, there was a, a farmer planting some seed. He threw it uh, threw over there, threw over there, and it all grew up in different ways. Oh, I see, and, and, and immediately even a child begins to understand uh, the sort of point of it that sometimes the seed grows and sometimes it doesn't, that the circumstances affect the way that the seed grows and that there can be false growth, growth and real growth and there are threats of all different kinds and so on. And already in that sense, a child has sort of, uh, sort of uh, apprehended the, the sort of kernel of the teaching but as the child grows in understanding of the gospel, that will further enrich and, enri- and all of the parables work in that way. A very simple beginning, but sort of uh, a, a great deal of promise, sort of never-ending growth and development and sort of payout. In that sense, the parable of the mustard seed 
itself sort of displays the nature of parables. The parable of the mustard seed is a story about a small seed that is apparently insignificant. Uh, it's simple, ordinary, unassuming, unimpressive. Um, nothing is unremarkable, but has unusual growth over time. It grows into something of surprising magnitude and even can support life, life in many forms. So in that way, again, the, must, the parable of the mustard seed is, is kind of a clever uh, teaching device because it shows its own, its own sort of capacity. It demonstrates the teaching potential of parables, of the parables themselves. This parable, of course, is about the kingdom of God. But it is about small beginnings. It's about modest or unassuming beginnings. It's about the start of something that is unimpressive. That beginning attracts no attention. It's sort of it's it's an it's about unremarkable beginning. And let me let me let me tell you this, it's it's often preached this way, which un- unfortunately is maybe not exactly helpful, but it's often preached this way, that Jesus here is talking about the kingdom of God, and he's talking about Christians, he's talking about uh, his people. And, and what he's saying is that sometimes things feel insignificant. Sometimes our part in the kingdom uh, doesn't feel, it's not rewarding uh, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes the world doesn't pay us back. Sometimes we don't, we don't, we don't feel like it's worth it. We don't feel like it's working out. We don't feel like we're having any impact. We feel insignificant. We feel maybe intimidated by the task set before us, or, 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 or by sort of the size of the world and our anonymity. The man in the story. The farmer who sows his seed, his name is not, nothing is said about him. And so very often a preacher will say, do you feel that way? Do you feel like your, do you feel as though your work does not matter? As though your contribution is unsure or insignificant? Do you feel that your work is unrewarded and so on? And it's, it's preached in this way as though it is meant to encourage us to feel better about our work. Do you feel insignificant? But don't worry, great things will come of you. You might, you, you, you might have only a small beginning, only an insignificant sort of presence at the start. It may look to you like the mountain is too tall, but you will summit that mountain. You will, and there, and great things will come from. You say, uh, very often preached that way. I want to say first that's not <laughs> that's not what the parable. The parable does not support that interpretation. I want to say second, I sort of sympathize. And one of the amazing things about parables is that uh, they offer so so many sort of angles, so many sort of instructive and promising angles. Again, you can teach a parable to a child. To the Lord God, uh, Lord God, aren't we all children with only the feeblest understanding? And so to children, we can teach these things. You can teach that the good Samaritan means love other people. But doesn't it mean so much more 
you can't really explain that in any depth without the history of Israel and without explaining who is Judah and Israel, who is, what is Jerusalem and Samaria, who are the Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans and that, 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 that social, religious, social dynamic and so on. And so why is it so important that it's a Samaritan at the end of the story, etc.? But it is true that it means be a kind person. It just means so much more than that. In the same way, this parable is an encouragement but to say that it means feel better about your work is really to sell it way short. Notice, first of all, that the man is never named. He's anonymous at the beginning, and he disappears completely from the story. He's never mentioned again. So the parable is not teaching that you are headed for significance despite a quiet beginning. That your work does matter. It doesn't it, it doesn't, it's not, our work does matter. Certainly that's there, but it's not meant to be a story about our hidden greatness. It is a dangerous misuse of the passage. That's very strong language. My fellow, our fellow Christians, forgive me, but it, 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 can, be, it, can, be, it can be dangerous to take something like this and and to use it for us to focus more on ourselves than on Christ. So, so let's back up and sort, of, and sort of see if we can see if we can get another another pass at it. Notice again that the parable is about the kingdom. The parable is about the kingdom, and Jesus says the kingdom is like. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed. So is the kingdom like the seed? Is it like the man? Is it like the sowing of seed? Is it like the growth? Is it like the final? Pr- is it like the birds who take? A, is, it, is, it about, is it the fact that this, it could be any of the, in fact, it's the whole story. The whole story. Again, the, the sort of the magic. Uh, it's a strange word I guess to use but it's sort of the magic the mystery of a parable that you can look at it from every angle but think about the sowing of the seed that is part of the narrative the sowing of the seed about the kingdom it's about the kingdom now not the church now these things are not unrelated but Jesus says this is the kingdom now the church well, the church can be many things. If you stand out in the street in front of the church and you say, that is a church, you are correct. The building is a church. But it's, it's a church because that's where the church meets. And in that sense, the church means the people. But it's not only the people, it's the people. On this rock I will build my church. Which rock is that? The confession of who Christ is. So the church is the people that confesses Christ. Even more than that, it's the people indwelt by the Spirit. The church signifies the center, if you will, the center of the kingdom. The church is where we proclaim that Christ is Lord. But that lordship unfolds and that proclamation blossoms into a kingdom. He was raised in the flesh, and that new flesh, that resurrected body, is the beginning, not of uh, the, the church covering the world, so that all the church is a building with a steeple. 
but it's the beginning of a new heavens and new earth. And there is much more to life on earth than merely public worship. See, the kingdom is all things to the glory of God. The resurrection of Jesus means the renewal of all of life. Not just the renewal of the religious aspect of life, but the renewal of the religious liveliness of all of life. So on the one hand, there's an expansiveness to really what this means. He's talking not about uh, Christian life as ministry or as church life. Uh, the church is sort of, the, the, sort of the, the beating heart of this whole thing. But he doesn't say church. He doesn't say worship. He doesn't say communion of saints. or, or bro- He says kingdom. There, I don't think there's a, a, a grander term that Jesus uses to describe what is coming, to describe the, the goal of his work, to describe what it means for the people, for his people, for the church. The, the, the overriding term, the, the, the emphasis, is particularly in Matthew, is this, it is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, centered around the throne of the Lamb. So there's an expansiveness to it, a cultural richness to it. My point in saying this is he is not talking about evangelism or not only about evangelism. Another way this is often preached is the mustard seed, and, 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 and people will say, well, see, all you have to do is evangelize. And it sort of, it sort of implicitly puts this burden on you that your you're primary or only Christian, the proof of your Christianness, your faith is, is, your faith is confirmed in this and only this that you evangelize. False. It is a kingdom. Meaning everything that we do, when we do it out of a principle of obedience and adoration and newness of life, when it is resurrection life that sends us to our labor, we are doing kingdom labor. So it's, this, it's, it's that kind of really untamable concept of the richness of renewed culture. It's all of that that constitutes the kingdom. And every individual Christian, how many times does Paul say, it's like a body. There's this finger and this finger and then there's the eye and the ear and the foot and the, and the, and the le- Every part, Paul says, is essential. And no two parts are the same. Some will evangelize on the street corners. Some will preach in the pulpits. Some will counsel and pastor and study scripture. Others will go into the business place. Others will teach. Others will work the fields. It's a kingdom. All to the glory of God. All because Christ was raised. He wasn't raised in the flesh so that we could close ourselves in and hide from the world. Hoarding ourselves off and hold our breath until he returns again, but that we can embrace new life and do good things and walk in good works. 
when Peter says to be ready to have an explanation, he says, set apart Christ and go do things. Matthew 28, he doesn't say, go forth and evangelize and keep evangelizing. He says, and teach them to obey everything, all things. Nothing is left out. In the kingdom of the kingdom implications of the resurrection of Christ. Everything for which we were made, everything to which God has called every one of us, through the wreckage of sin, He will call us again to serve His kingdom. In a distinct and precious way, everyone. Now that expansiveness and really encouraging richness is sort of counterbalanced or nuanced or colored with the humble anonymity of this man who sows the seed. We learn nothing about who he is or where he's from. Again, as compared to the parable of, this, of uh, 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 the, good, the Good Samaritan, we learn all about the identities of many of the people involved there. Here it's not relevant. He is not relevant. Not only is he not relevant, his work is unremarkable. He sows one seed in his own garden. He didn't even get a whole pack of seeds. And, he, and he's not sort of cultivating a hundred hectares or a square kilometer. He's not a, he's not a commercial farmer. It's a dude with a garden out his kitchen window, maybe a pot on his patio, and he's got one seed. There's no indication of importance or promise or prestige. He is doing the simple, humble thing to which he feels called. This parable doesn't really want to say, don't worry if you feel insignificant because you actually you are significant. It doesn't say that. It says, in the eyes of the world, we are all insignificant. In the eyes of the world, our Savior is a joke. In the eyes of the world, we are most to be pitied. The very words of the Apostle Paul. Only the resurrection can vindicate our work. Only the resurrection of the God-man from the dead can make sense of our worldview. We hang everything on a most shocking claim that the second person of a single but tripersonal deity took on flesh and walked around the ancient Near East, talked sort of strangely about himself, claimed to be the fulfillment of some ancient scriptures, was sort of tricked, duped, persecuted, murdered, and then put in a cave, but, but came back. Our whole worldview hangs on this strangest of claims. 
Yes, our work is strange and apparently insignificant. We cannot expect, we should not place our hope in a shiny worldly resume or the, the fear of men or the adoration of humanity. We cannot be in it for the praise of the world. For some of us, it may come. For some of us, it may not. This parable teaches it is totally irrelevant because the kingdom that we serve is not of this world. Why would Paul feel compelled to say that because of the resurrection, our work, our labor is not in vain? Because when you see that truth and meaning, that restoration of my heart and my soul and my mind begins with a crucified God raised and disappeared from the earth. When you see that it was the wisdom of God to put us to work in the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel, we'll see that we have no place here. Our home is a heavenly home. Our citizenship is not on earth. Our values are different. Our hope is different. Our Father is a heavenly one. And it is for our heavenly Father and His pleasure that we work. So we have to be careful that this parable doesn't lead us to think that there are hidden worldly goods for us. That worldly, worldly vindication will come for those who are faithful. It didn't come for Jesus. Not yet. This parable is telling us that in the apparent insignificance, in the disregard, Jesus says in the persecution, we will find blessing, pleasure, fulfillment, purpose, the approval of God Almighty. We may never see that tree bear full fruit or come to full growth in our lifetime. Abraham, who was promised the whole earth, didn't have a plot of ground on which to bury his wife. Our hope is not in this world. Now, it would be sort of tragic if the parable ended at that point. The man threw the seed. That would be a good Buddhist parable. He threw the seed and was gladly indifferent. But it doesn't end there. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. 
So again, the whole story is displaying to us the kingdom of God. In this case, uh, the anonymity of the man is viewed in light of the fulfillment of the whole story. We could call that, we could call that the, f- the, the, the point of view of ultimate fulfillment. Scripture gives us that point of view. When Paul says, because of the resurrection, our labor is not in vain, he means the resurrection of Christ some 2,000 years ago, but he means not only that, because the resurrection of Christ from the grave also includes, it implies and requires his ascension, his advocating for us in the meantime, and his return in glory. When Paul says the resurrection, he means the whole package. He means, he means that he has conquered sin and death and the world. He holds the keys of death and Hades. In the words of Jesus himself, all authority in heaven and on earth is his. And he will come again, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, not to deal with sin because he has dealt with it already, but to call home those who are his. So when Paul says that, because of the resurrection, our work is not in vain. He's not only talking about something that already happened, but he's talking about something that will happen. Our final public and full vindication of Christ himself and of the church has not yet come. Similarly, this parable gives us a view of the climax, the culmination, or the consummation of history. And it invites us to look at our contribution in light of the consummation of history, which is already implied in the resurrection. I am just a pinky in the body of Christ. But I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. No greater joy is there than to be the smallest member in the kingdom of the body of Christ, knowing that He was raised never to die again. No worldly glory. No vastness of worldly possessions. No global reputation can come close to the peace that surpasses understanding, to the peace of knowing Christ. That's what that historical perspective gives us. In this parable, Jesus himself is the seed. Jesus himself is the miracle of growth. I don't know anything about biology, about germination. It sounds like a nation in Western Europe bordering France. But scientists understand it. In fact, YouTube understands it. YouTube can tell you exact. YouTube is a is a very knowledgeable man. But YouTube can tell you all about the germination of seeds and about the germination of the mustard seed. YouTube will even show it to you. But no one can recreate. No one can fabricate the growth of the seed. 
Paul himself uses this as an illustration for the, for the, the, the mystery, the glory of, of his own ministry. He says, one plants, one waters. We do all this work. I preach, he does that, and they do this, but it's God who gives the growth. I think anyone who's worked with crops or has a garden knows that everything can be right. But sometimes the growth doesn't come. Or the odds can be against it. But sometimes it comes nonetheless. The life and the growth are miraculous. Jesus himself is the seed. He himself is that unassuming, humble, unremarkable beginning of great things. You see, the parable says sort of amazing, we've only just touched on how, how, on how this parable encourages us or it, it sort of reorients us so that we can view our work, our pers- the personal calling of each, and every per- of each and every person. It gives us a kingdom view on your and my individual role. It gives us a consummation view of how I should handle, handle myself today at work. How, how I should be as a husband tomorrow, this evening. The smallest things are brought into view in light of the consummation that is shown here in the image of a full-grown tree. At the same time, it tells us about the very power sort of in the soil of the kingdom. What, what is the power that gives life to this kingdom? The power is Christ himself. The power is his obedience, you see. If he had sinned, my son asked me this week, why can't I, he asked me actually, maybe he thinks I'm more noble than he, but which is an impression I try to maintain until he's old enough that he figures it out, that I'm pretty unimpressive. But for the time being, he thinks I'm I'm a cool guy, but he asked, "Can can you die for someone else's sins? Pretty cool question. Uh, for a two-year-old. No, I'm kidding. He's six. Still cool, though. Well, I said, I, c- I can't die for someone else's sins because I sinned. I already owe. If I die, my balance is zero. I don't have any left over. If I die, death has a right to hold me. I, I have earned it. Death is what I have earned. It is the wages of sin. Christ, however, because he sinned not, death could not contain him. Death has no legal grounds. He has not earned it. So when he dies, there is an overflow. There is a, he acquires great wealth. He, he becomes, Paul says, a life-giving spirit. And so he can give new and imperishable life. He can convey the new life that he himself enjoys. Jesus himself is that principle of mysterious and inexplicable life that sees a tiny little seed begin 
to grow and new life emerges from humble beginnings. He was born basically in an outhouse outside Jerusalem, outside Bethlehem. Before he was two, Herod sought to kill him. He was not of noble birth. And it bothered the elders that he had no formal training. As he grew and began to teach, it bothered the Jews more and more. He was persecuted and hated. People followed him, but it was a cheap, popular following, and he knew it. They were basically, they were basically fans of magic. You're, you're, you're excited because you filled your bellies, he said. Jesus himself is put to death and put in the ground. The kingdom that will grow to the tallest tree to support life, to exalt God, began with three days of silence. The Christian gospel is the humblest. It is the humblest religious message that any man has ever dared to tell. You can, you can search Google. <laughs> you can scour the earth. Here is selflessness. God most high. Not just a man. You know, the Buddha apparently was of noble birth and was struck with what he saw. Suffering in the world, and so he gave it all up. Jesus was Lord of the universe. He told the waters thus far and no further. He put the stars in place and he assigned, right? He is master of all, the Alpha, the Omega, the light and the life of men, the beginning, the end, who upholds all things by the word of his power. And he was silenced by our idiocy and anger, really by our self-hatred. Only self-hatred could kill the author of life. What twisted horror. But it was the seed of new beginnings. It was the seed of recreation. The worship of the Buddha today is a desperate and sorry attempt to draw newness out of a dead man. But our Christ lives. Jesus reigns. And today, my unimpressive labor is not in vain. Today, our fight against sin and temptation, our seeking His glory in unmomentous corners of our lives, when we are alone with the door closed, when only our Father in heaven can see, 
There he can be glorified. There heaven comes to earth. There spiritual blessings from the heavenly places are brought into the world and newness is given to Christ's people. Quiet, humble beginnings. A baby in a manger. A silent tomb. The resurrection of a man from nowhere. That all things in the end would be made new. That every tear would be wiped away. And that there would be joy in his presence forever. This new creation is relevant every day. This end, this consummation. The power of the resurrection that will be brought in its fullest is with us, as Jesus says, every day. Every day in everything, even to the end of the age. Amen.